please remain standing and take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. I'm not Richard Brooke. We're actually reusing the bulletins that we plan to use for last week just to be good stewards of, of the things that God has given us. Uh, so this morning I will be preaching from Hebrews chapter 10 verses 1 through 18 on the finished work of, of Christ. So let us give attention to God's word this morning. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have, have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying this is the covenant that i will make with them after these days declares the lord i will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds then he adds i will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more where there is forgiveness of these there is no longer any offering for sin amen that sends a reading of god's word you may be seated I'm sure all of you are familiar with the phrase hindsight is 2020 right and then there's a lot of truth to that that hindsight is 2020 it's always easier to look back on circumstances and have a clearer understanding of what just happened than it is to be in the midst of circumstances and try to look forward to the future and the things that are going on now, to some degree, uh, we experience this kind of uh, hindsight sometimes, I think, when we watch movies, especially if you, watch, if you like to watch movies that have sort of a, a surprise ending. One of those movies where you're like, I didn't see that coming. Uh, that just totally took me by surprise. And, uh, you know, oftentimes when you watch a movie like that, you'll go back and you'll watch it again. Only this time, you have the ending in mind. And so as you're going through the movie, maybe for once, two more times, however many times you watch it, you begin to look for those signs that point to that surprise ending. 
And, and what you see is, is that those signs were there all along. The movie was guiding you towards that surprise ending. You just didn't see it the first time as you watched through. Well, that's somewhat what the book of Hebrews is like, as the writer is writing to his congregation. He's writing to these Jewish Christians. You know, we know that these are people who had grown up with the Old Testament Jewish sacrificial system that God had established. And it never dawned on them that it was God's plan to do away with priests. It was not God's plan. They never saw that it was God's plan to change the priesthood from just the normal uh, Aaronic priesthood to the Melchizedekian priesthood. They could not see that it was his plan to do away with animal sacrifices. And, and not only to do away with them, but to send someone whose body would be offered as a place for these Old Testament sacrifices. That's the surprise ending that they, they didn't recognize. But the author here of Hebrews is seeking to take them back through the scriptures to look at Psalm 40, to look at Jeremiah 31, and show them that, no, actually, it was there all the time. You just didn't see it coming. And so he goes back through the Old Testament with a Christocentric, with a Christ-centered focus to show them that this was about Christ. And so we're going to look at our passage today, and we're going to divide it up into two sections. First of all, looking at the reasons not to trust in the Old Testament sacrificial system in verses 1 through 4. And secondly, the reasons to trust in Christ as our perfect and final sacrifice in, in verses 5 through 18. So let's first of all look at the reasons not to trust in the Old Testament sacrificial system. But before we do, let's let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you, Lord, so much uh, that we could come before you this morning and that we could sit at your feet in one sense like Mary and Martha had the opportunity to do so. But Lord, let our hearts not be busy with other things and be thoughtful of, of other things. Uh, let us, though, listen to you. We pray for your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts and and to open our minds and our hearts and our wills, Lord, to receive that which you have for us this morning. Let us come with hearts of generosity and with joy and thankfulness, God, that you are God that speaks to your people. So please, Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen. So what are the reasons not to trust in the Old Testament sacrificial system? Well, the first thing I want us to see in verse 1 is, is that the sacrifices were but a shadow of the reality to come. Verse 1 says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that were continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. In other words, the sacrifices uh, could not do what um, they want to do because they were only a shadow. Now, when he talks here in this text about the law, I don't believe that he's talking here about the Ten Commandments and the, the broader law, but really the ceremonial law. And the reason I say that is, is that as you look at this verse, it talks about the sacrifices that were continually offered. And so he's, he's saying here that in that ceremonial laws, they're just a shadow of the reality that comes in Jesus Christ. Christ. Now, sometimes people view the Old Testament sacrificial system as wrong or as sinful or even as something that's bad. But that's not true. 
it was just provisional or it was temporary. It, we see here in this text that it's like the relationship between the shadow and a person. You know, this the shadow of a person doesn't contradict that person. Um, if you look at a person's shadow, you can tell a little bit about them. You know, not completely, but uh, kids, if I were standing here and there was a bright light, maybe the sun behind me shining on my back and the shadow was on the floor, you can look at that shadow and you could tell. You couldn't tell me exactly how tall I was, but you could probably tell if I was real tall or real short, whether I was real wide or, or maybe more narrow. Maybe you could tell how long my hair was. Maybe you could see that I have a beard if I turn sideways. You could tell certain things uh, about me. Uh, you could, and you can tell quite a bit about a person from their shadow. But if you meet the real person, do you ever want to go back to the shadow? And the cancer is, of course not. You know, I wouldn't want to relate to a person's shadow. I would want to talk to that person. And, and it's a very simple analogy that the author gets here, but it's, it's very profound. And, and it's the same way with the animal sacrifices. For these Hebrew Christians, you know, they had this draw to go back to this. But he's saying, that's just a shadow. It's not like seeing the real image of, of Christ. And when people go back to animal sacrifices instead of the real thing, there's, there's a reason why they do so. And we've looked at some of the reasons in, in our text as to why they were going back. But one reason is, is that people love the idea of rituals as opposed to relationships. They like the idea of rituals as opposed to relationships. And what I mean by religious rituals is religion with external practices. Um, I mean, think about that. You know, religious rituals are comfortable and they're safe. There, there's a sense in, in rituals in which you can have control and sort of manage uh, your religious experience that is going on. I can um, make it what I want to be, and yet it doesn't have to be too personal. There, there's a sense in which some people do that even today where they come to church and they, they're, they're here in worship, but they want to keep God at arm's length. They, they really don't want a God that is going to deal with their heart. It doesn't, they don't want a God who is going to deal with the sin in their lives. You know, but the problem is, is that the real God is not something that we can control, nor is he safe. It might remind you of Aslan in, in the Chronicles of Narnia. And I don't remember which character, whether it was Lucy or who, who says, is Aslan a tame lion? And the answer was, tame? No, of course not. And our God is, is much the same way. But there's also, I think, people seek out rituals because there's a sense of feeling good about ourselves. Because we can go through the mechanics of uh, mechanical motions, for example, of a worship service, and walk away and feel good about ourselves because we have done something for God. And so we leave and we think that we have done our duty and we have done something for God and so we can feel good about ourselves. But there's also a sense in which uh, a ritual is something that you can also uh, experience. You can taste it. You can smell it. You can hear it. You can touch it. You know, and of course, that's not all bad. Um, there is a sense in which as we come to the Lord's Supper, it is sort of that religious ritual. It is sort of a, um, a visual expression of the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. So it's, it's not all bad. But if our focus is on the experience or the, the ritual rather than the relationship and the reality of Christ that that ritual points to, that's where something is wrong. Now, 
think about how different a ritual is from an actual relationship. Relationships are, are not neat and tidy. If you have a relationship with the living God, it's not as simple as going through a checklist. And so the author warns us against pursuing God in a way that is comfortable for us. Such rituals are only shadows, but Jesus is the real thing. The second reason why the animal sacrifices were insufficient is because um, if they could take away sins, would they not have ceased? Uh, look at verse 2. Otherwise, would they have not ceased? That's uh, picking up from what he had talked about with the sacrifices in verse 1. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? In other words, if these animal sacrifices had actually taken away the sins of the people, then they would have no more consciousness of their sin because it would the, the sins were gone. If, if the... Uh, um, they would have stopped. If these sacrifices actually took away your sins, then wouldn't they have stopped offering those sacrifices because they would no longer be necessary. But the fact is, is that the priests had to continually offer the sacrifices. And in doing so, they were really proving that these sacrifices don't really take away the sins at all. Therefore, you cannot trust in these sacrifices to make you right with God. The repetitive nature of the sacrifices should have shown these Christians that the sacrifices did not accomplish what they thought it did. Now, does that mean then that there was no benefit in the animal sacrifices, that they served no purpose? Well, of course that's not the case. Look at verse 3. It says, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Now, isn't this beautiful? Even in the Old Testament sacrifice, we see the gospel of Jesus Christ, or we see the, the seeds of, of that gospel. Those animal sacrifices weren't there to take away the sins of the people, but a reminder to the people that they were sinners in need of grace and forgiveness. The, the message is not, if you work hard enough, if you give enough sacrifices, if you just check off the boxes and and do the commands that God says. If you, you know, if you go to church, if you give financially, if you serve others, if you're kind to one another, then you'll be right with God. That's not at all the message that is there. The animal sacrifices said repeatedly, "You are not okay as you are. You're a sinner, and justice needs to be done for your sin. Blood needs to be spilled. A life has to be given to pay for that sin." Now it would stand to reason that the life that ought to be given for my sin is my life, right? Um, but, but they were showing us that, that a life had to be given. And, and actually, if, if you look at the Old Testament, I'm just gonna digress just a moment from our text here, but you know, if you really think about the Old Testament, uh, it, it really points us to this, this idea, especially if you look at the purity laws in the book of Leviticus, you know, that's sort of the part of the Bible that oftentimes we skip over. We're like, oh, there's all these laws. And, and basically what it seems to communicate to us is we're unclean. If you do this, you're unclean. If you do that, you're unclean. If this happens in order to make you uh, clean again, you must do that. And there's all these laws. But, but the bottom line is, is it shows us that we're unclean and we are in need of a Savior. And you couldn't be a Jew... In, in the Old Testament for very long before you realize that something's wrong and you need forgiveness and grace because everywhere you turn, you bumped into that. Everywhere in your life, everywhere you turned, you were reminded there was something 
that was keeping you from God. The third reason why the animal sacrifices were not sufficient is because he says the blood of bulls and goats is not able to take away sin. Verse 4. Where it's impossible. It's not, it's hard. It's not that, you know, you, you, you can only do it sometimes. He says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Um, so that means, you know, even if you came to God and you say, God, but I'm the most sincere. I am coming to you and I really mean it with all my heart. And I'm offering my sacrifices to you. It's still impossible to take away our sins. If we said, God, but I'll give you everything. I'll slaughter every animal, every bull, every goat, and every herd and every flock that I have. He says, but it's impossible to take away our sins. It doesn't matter what we do. The point the author is trying to show is that every effort that we make, no matter how well intended it is, is never enough to take away our sins. All the things that we feel like we can offer to God, all the things that we feel will surely make our relationship with God right, surely this will pay for my sins. Surely this will make me good again with God. But the answer is always the same. No, it won't. Because it, it's impossible for us to atone for our own sins. Now, brothers and sisters, we may know that. When it comes to coming to faith in Jesus Christ and our sins. But I wonder sometimes if in our struggle with sin and when we give into that sin. And um, especially if we have fallen into what we would consider a heinous sin. And, and we uh, understand that we have sinned grievously against God. When, when we uh, come back to Him. When we repent of our sins. Is there a sense in which this kind of thinking can sneak in that maybe I need to do something to be made right again with God rather than trusting in Christ? The bottom line is this, that by the time we come to the end of verse 4, the author has really set up the problem. The Old Testament sacrifices don't accomplish what you think it does. No more than our efforts to approach God accomplishes what we think. Even if it includes those things that God has commanded, such as church attendance, giving to the poor, serving others. You know, we can be so tempted, can we not, even as Christians, to look to other things for, for cleansing and other things to make us right with God. But Jesus is the only one who actually gives us forgiveness and a relationship with God. Now think about that. Uh, we too often take that for granted. Have you ever thought about the fact that God is not obligated to save you? you? Ever think about that? I think we always think, well, you know, God's going to come through. But God would be righteous, He would be just, and He would be holy if He left us in our sins to face judgment and wrath. But the good news is, He doesn't. And, and we see that in verses 5 through 18, that, that God did something. He didn't simply leave us in the repetitive reminder of our sin. But God sent a Savior who was the perfect and the final sacrifice for our sin. God dealt with our sin through the finished work of Christ. And so I want us to look at then now the reasons to trust in Christ as our perfect and final sacrifice. 
because Christ could do what the Old Testament could not do. It was only a shadow. He is the reality. Well, first of all, we see in verses 5 through 10 that Christ offers his own body instead of animal sacrifices. Now, let me read verses 5 through 7. Uh, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and in sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now, this is a quote from, from Psalm 40. And notice what the psalmist says when he starts out. He says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Now, why would God establish the sacrificial system and say that he doesn't desire sacrifices? Um, well, sort of the, the bottom line is this. What he is saying is, is that the animal sacrifices are God, not God's ultimate goal. Let me see if I can unpack that a little bit. Even in the Old Testament, we see this idea. David, when he has committed sin with Bathsheba, and they have their firstborn child, and he dies, David is confessing his sin to the Lord in Psalm 51. And this is what David prays in Psalm 51, 16. He's praying to the Lord, and he says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In other words, God is not pleased with those who go through the motions of sacrifice and offerings of those of external rituals and, and religion without any head or heart involvement. He, he doesn't just want to see an outward form of repentance, just going through the motions, checking off the boxes. He wants to see a heart that is truly repentant before him. Perhaps... The best Old Testament example comes from the life of King Saul. In 1 Samuel 15, Saul had disobeyed the Lord explicitly, his explicit command of God not to take captive any of the livestock of his enemies. But Saul did anyway. And so the prophet Samuel came to him and, and challenged Saul about this. And so Saul says to Samuel that he will be willing to offer sacri a few animals of sacrifice to God sort of, in a sense, sort of paying God off uh, according to the letter of the Levitical law. But when Samuel heard that, he rebuked Saul. And this is what he said in 1 Samuel 15, 22. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. You see, the point that Samuel is making and the point that we see in this text is that even though God established the sacrificial system, obedience is what pleases the Lord. God is satisfied by a heart that is eager to do His will, not sacrifices to cover over our disobedience. That's not what the Lord is looking for. I, I, when I hear that, I think about um, a phrase that I hear even Christians using um, quite a bit, and that is, have you ever heard anybody say, it's much easier to ask for forgiveness than permission? In, in other words, I, I'm going to go ahead and do what I want to do, and if I get in trouble for that, then I'll just ask for forgiveness. 
Well, you know, that kind of idea is, is making its way into the church more and more and more. And, and Christians, we're finding our, our uh, instead of wrestling and battling with sin, are oftentimes just thinking, you know what? God is gracious. I'll just give in to that sin, and I'll just ask him for forgiveness. Rather than seeking to mortify our sin, seeking to put to death by the, the power of the Holy Spirit, by standing on the promises of God's word, it's just a sense in which we just say, you know, I'll just ask God for forgiveness. I'll just give in to that sin. But in the eyes of God, to obey is better than sacrifice. Now, now look on in this text. He says, uh, But a body have you prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Now, Psalm 50 is really an anticipation of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Notice he says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said... Um, and then he gives this quote from Psalm 40. In other words, the writer of Hebrews doesn't see this as the words of the psalmist, but the words of Christ himself looking forward to the incarnation of Jesus. God is saying that I am going to send someone explicitly in the line of David who is going to be a human being, a person, someone who has a body like you and me, not a ghost, not, not some spiritual being only, but a person who will be given instead of animal sacrifices for the sins of God's people. And no wonder when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, we read in John 1.29 that John says about Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God made Jesus a real human being with a real body, to die for the sin of humanity in the same way that the Old Testament sacrifices had a body that had to be offered so Christ had a physical body a life that must be given for the penalty of sin the difference is is that Christ had a different kind of body he had a human body to die for our sin and then he goes on and he says in verse 7 then I said behold I have come to do your will O God as it is written of me in the scroll of the book you see Jesus task when he came to this earth as a Messiah was to do the will of God it was to do what God had told him to do and Jesus even said in John chapter 4 that that is my food to do the will of the Father who, who sent me to willingly consciously intentionally give his body for his people as a sacrifice you see in animal sacrifices you may never have thought about this. It hadn't dawned on me until this week. Animal sacrifices, they are forced to give their bodies for the sins of God's people. They had no choice. But that's not the way it was with Jesus. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 27, um, beginning, we'll pick it up in verse 49, um, speaking of Jesus on the cross and those around the cross that are are uh, speaking of him they said but the other said wait let us see whether elijah will come to save him verse 50 says and jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded or gave up his spirit you see jesus life wasn't taken from him when you and i die when when the end of our days comes on this earth in whatever whatever circumstances that may be when god says your time is up our life is taken from us. We don't give it up. 
God takes it. And He takes it, his, us as His children to glory. But for Jesus, His life was not taken from Him, but He gave that up willingly. It was, he wasn't forced to die, but He willingly became a sacrifice for the sins of His people. Now, brothers and sisters, that is a picture of love. Is it not? In the Old Testament, the sacrificial system, the sacrifices, as I said, was just ritual. You just take an animal, you kill it, and that was it. It was impersonal, it was distant, it was external. But what Christ did was very different. Jesus offers himself because he loves you. It is relational, it is personal. It was never viewed that way, though, in the Old Testament sacrificial system. And that's what makes Christ's sacrifice so wonderful. That God would choose to love us as his people. Why? Well, there's no reason in us for him to do so. It's simply because he chose to do so. Brothers and sisters, that, that, is, that is the reality that will fuel the fire of our worship for all eternity. As we stand before God and we see the lamb that was slain on our behalf. The, the, the second reason why Christ's sacrifice is perfect and final is in verses 11 through 14. Um, it says Christ's work was successful because he sat down. Now we've talked a, a lot about Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this point. But I do want to point out the different things that we see in the verses. Look at verse 11. Notice that every priest stands daily at his service. And we've talked about this in the past, how that means that his work was never done. And that's why the priest stood. But Jesus offered only a single sacrifice, and he sat down, we see in verse 12. And, and, and that sitting is a sign of success. His sacrifice worked. It was, it was finished. And he sits at the right hand of God, which is a position of power and judgment. And so Jesus has dealt with the sin of his people so that we could have a relationship with God. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. It is. It's finished. Our sins are addressed. But he's not only justified us, but also accomplished our sanctification. Look at verse 14. Thus the author says, For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now I'll talk about that a little bit more in just a minute. But I want us to think about this just for a second. Our sins have been addressed. You see, in our minds, sin is a reality that we live with every day. I, this week we were uh, listening in our family worship to a Ligonier Ministry um, audio series and uh, R.C. Sproul says I do not understand what an existence apart from sin is and that's the reality of all of us we don't know what life is like without sin the presence of sin is an ongoing battle for all of us and it will be until the day that we die but I wonder if because sin is so prominent in our lives that we oftentimes forget that just because sin is present in our lives does not mean that it has power over us. Doesn't mean that the penalty has not been addressed. 
And I think it's easy, even as Christians, because sin is there, to forget that the work of the sin, our sin is finished. The guilt is taken care of. The payment has been made. The power is no longer there. We can stand against our sin. I wonder sometimes if we forget this and view our sin as this unconquerable enemy that, that we'll just have to learn to live with for the rest of our life. Um, and, and we see that in all kinds of different ways, but a popular Christian bumper sticker once said, I'm not perfect, just forgiven. Maybe you've seen that. I think it's an old bumper sticker. But in, in an important sense, this is not true. Okay, in the eyes of God, you have been made perfect because you are in Christ. You, you are a beneficiary of His perfection. And, if, you know, He says in verse 14, For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time. Okay? Now, of course, there's a process that's not yet been completed yet. We are being sanctified. That's the other reality. And that's the end of verse 14. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And what he's saying is, is that a Christian sanctification is so certain of achievement that it is now viewed as accomplished. Even though we are in the process of being sanctified, as believers in Jesus Christ, because of what Christ has done, that sanctification is, is so certain of achievement that it's viewed is already accomplished. You see, the present tense of Christianity is always linked to and rests upon the past tense of Christ's finished work. Christ's finished work on the cross has destroyed the power and of sin and its penalty. And as Christians, our identity is not that of sinners who sometimes obey, but rather we are holy in the Lord. But yet we still struggle with sin from time to time. And how we view ourselves and how we see our identity is so important in how we live out the Christian life. Of what we have been made in the heavenlies in Christ is not unrelated to what we must become here on earth and how we ought to live. You see, the Christian rule is this, that we are to be what we are in Christ. And since we have been made perfect in Christ, we are now becoming holy in practical ways because we are positionally holy in Christ. Holiness is our established destiny and so it becomes our present reality day by day as the work of the Holy Spirit works in us. Brothers and sisters, if, if this cannot be said of us as individuals and our claim to be in Christ, it must be challenged. And, and it greatly affects us. As we look at our everyday life, do we look at sin as this unconquerable enemy that will always be there forever and ever and ever and there's nothing that we can do about it? Or do we see our sin as being addressed by our Savior, it is finished. Christ has dealt with it. So as I face temptations, I can go to that temptation with the idea, you know what? That sin no longer has power over me. I can obey in the power of Jesus Christ. And in His finished work, I can trust in that. I can place my faith in that. 
and I can walk in obedience to Him. And, and when I do fall into sin, when I wrestle and I struggle and I do fall into sin, that I understand that I am forgiven. Not because I, I now have said I'm, I'm not going to do that sin anymore. I'm going to obey God. Or, I'm, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be, I haven't been having my quiet time. I'm, I'm going to try to be more faithful to have my quiet time. That's not what's going to bring about and deal with the guilt of my sin. It has already been dealt with by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Do I trust that? I had a person ask me one time, boy, it just sort of shook me to the core of my being. They said, let's imagine, Rick, that you had sinned against the Lord and sinned in an awful way. And you were just ashamed. You felt guilt and shame because of your sin. And then you had an opportunity to, to witness, to share Christ with someone right after that. Do you feel like you would be able to share Christ with that person? Or do you feel like you would be unworthy to do that? And, you know, if I were honest, I would say at times I would feel unworthy to do that. And, and they reminded me and said, but then you're trusting in yourself and your works rather than trusting in what Christ has done for you. Well, finally, let's look at the third reason. The Holy Spirit assures us that our sins are really forgiven. Verses 15 through 18. This is a, uh, the author quotes Jeremiah 31 that we saw back in Hebrews 8. And he says, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying this, so by the way, he's, he's saying that the, the words of Jeremiah are actually the words of, of the Holy Spirit, showing that it's inspired. But he says, This is what the covenant that I will make with them after those days declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts. Here again, you see that, that sanctifying work of Christ in our life. And he says, I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Amen? Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering of sin. You see, the reason why there is no longer any offering for sin is that Jesus' sacrifice accomplished what it set out to do. Jesus got it done in one sense. You see, you can contrast this. Look back at verse 4. You know, verse 4 said that it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats, right, to forgive our sins. But unlike the animal sacrifices in verse 4, where it's impossible... Jesus' sacrifice actually takes away the penalty and the power of our sin. And it is a sacrifice that is done once and for all. That's why Christ only died once. Because it actually accomplished what He set out to do. And so Christ's life was one of absolute perfect obedience to God. But so was His death as well. Now we can't say that, can we? I wish we could say that, that we could live in perfect obedience. We know that God desires obedience more than sacrifice. You know, and, but, but each week in worship, when we come to the confession of sin, we are reminded of our continual struggle with sin and our need for, for God's forgiveness. And no matter how hard we try to walk in obedience to God and to seek to do His will, we fail, do we not? And, and, and for some, we fail terribly, or at least that's what we feel like. Not only are we aware of our sin, but, but even feel overwhelmed 
by our sin. But that's why we can never hope to stand before God's judgment one day on our own. We need an advocate. You know, just like someone who, who goes before the judge, an earthly judge, and you've committed a sin, and you're guilty, the reality is you need a good attorney, right? You know, but we're looking for a good attorney to get us off the hook. But Jesus isn't a, an attorney to get us off the hook. He's actually an attorney to come and to pay the price so that we might go free. Jesus' sacrifice is the only one that will please God because Jesus does the will of the Father. And so even though we can, He covers our sin. But He not only has justified us, but He has sanctified us as well. And so, I don't know where you're at today. You know, maybe in, in your battle with sin, you're struggling and you're wrestling, and, and maybe you have felt tremendous guilt and shame, and you're just like, oh, I'm just so thankful that nobody else at Kirk of the Plains knows what I've done this week. You know, and the sins that, that I've committed, I would just be horrified to do that. And we, and we can be fickle, and we can oftentimes fail in our struggle with sin, and maybe we have fallen into that trap and just thought, you know, I'll just ask God for forgiveness. I'll sin, and I'll just ask Him for forgiveness. But Jesus has died to perfect us, to perfect those of us who are being sanctified. Let us walk in that, that perfect, that finished work of Jesus Christ. Let us experience the freedom that we have, no longer slaves to sin, but set free in Christ to walk in obedience to Him, giving Him all the praise and the honor and the glory. Amen? Let's bow our heads this morning. so prone to think about ourselves and, and the things that, that we think we can do to somehow appease you. Forgive us God for our sin. And I pray that you would help us to trust
trust in Christ fully, to really understand what He has done, what it means that He is that, that finished work on our behalf. Help us to walk in that freedom we pray. We ask these things in Your name. Amen.